All right, well, good to see you tonight. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 7? Last week we saw in chapter 6 how God had commanded Noah to build an ark because he was going to bring a flood upon the earth to destroy mankind because of its wickedness. He and his sons took 120 years to build that ark, very big ark, 75 feet wide by 45 feet high, 450 feet long, gigantic thing. And so we read in verse 1 now of Genesis 7, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, as we have already said, Noah's righteousness wasn't earned. It was imputed because of his faith. We see this come through very clear in Hebrews 11, verse 7, which is, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. We're going to see this with Abraham, who lived 400 years after the flood, how that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. Paul makes a big thing out of that concept, because that's what salvation is. We don't earn salvation. We need perfect righteousness to be saved. We can't begin to come close to perfect righteousness. So in other words, if God didn't intervene and provide a righteousness that went beyond ours, there's no way we could get to heaven. And that's exactly what he did. The Bible calls it the righteousness of God in Christ. And it's perfect because Jesus was perfect. And the way we have his righteousness is if we believe and then God imputes it. The Greek word in the New Testament is a word that means to, it's a bookkeeping term. To place to somebody's account. So God places to our account the righteousness of Christ, which is the only righteousness God accepts. Perfect righteousness. So Noah was a righteous man because he believed. And because he believed and was saved, he lived a righteous life, as we have seen last time. Now, God said in verse 1 to Noah and his family, come into the ark. And again, God was inviting, or God was inside inviting Noah and his family to come in. Now, he's, as we said last week, the ark is a symbol of Jesus Christ. And just as God invites us uh, to come into or to enter into Christ, he's inviting now Noah and his family to enter into the ark. And again, last week we said God never commands us to be saved against our free will. He always invites us to be saved and then honors the choice that we make. Now in verse 2 we read, You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. Now this has baffled some who can't understand why God would tell Noah to take seven each of every clean animal, male and female, but only two each of every unclean animal, male and female. Well, it's not hard to figure out. When they left the ark a year later, after the floodwaters had receded, Noah offered some of the animals to God. If he had only brought two of each species, a male and female, whatever animals he offered to God, that species would have become extinct, of course. So in looking forward to the fact he was going to be offering to God uh, after the flood as a way of thanking and praising and worshiping God who had brought them through the flood safely, 
uh, God told them to bring seven of the clean, both male and female. All right. And uh, of course, the unclean animals couldn't be offered to God. He wouldn't accept those. So he only needed to bring two of each of those species. And once again, as we said last time, Noah didn't have to go out catching all these animals. All right. Because in chapter 6, verse 20, it says God brought the animals to Noah. Now, skeptics challenge this notion. They say, you know, how could animals that are unique to certain parts of the world, like penguins and kangaroos, how could they make it across oceans to the ark? And the answer to that is that at this time, the earth was not divided up into continents. It was still one large landmass. And don't forget, animals migrate. And they had 120 years to migrate as God was bringing them from every place where they were, bringing those to the ark that were going to be on the ark. So it's not a big thing to think about that, that, you know, animals migrate at 120 years for God to get them to the ark. I mean, he could have, they could have disappeared in one area of the world and appeared right there at the ark. But I do think they migrated uh, as God led them. Now, verse 4 for after, God said, for after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Now, it appears from the story, and not everyone agrees with this, but I, I think it's true, okay, I think it's right, that even though Noah had been preaching for 120 years while him and his sons you know, built this ark, that when it was all done, God had Noah and his family enter the ark, it appears from the language that God left the door of the ark open for another seven days. Why? I think to give everyone that might have had a last-minute change of heart time to repent, climb on board before the flood came. Now, of course, that didn't happen. No one, in fact, had a change of heart. Uh, and I think what really happened was that it must have ratcheted up their mocking of Noah. I mean, think about this, okay? I mean, here's a guy for 120 years. He had been preaching repentance to the wicked generation of his day, telling them, look, you guys need to repent because God's sending rain and a flood and they're going to wipe you all out if you don't get your lives right with God. And I'm sure more than one person asked him, rain, what's rain? Well, it's water from the sky. Water from the sky? Are you out of your mind? You're an idiot. You know, I'm sure that, you know, and this is what he was preaching for 120 years. While they're building the ark. And now finally the ark is done. Noah and his family have gotten on board. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. And they sat there waiting. One day. Two days. Three days. And I, I kind of believe a whole crowd is gathered around this ark now. Okay? I mean the doors open. They can see them inside. They're sitting there like a bunch of dummies. You know, waiting for something called rain. And, and people are just mocking and laughing and just... Just really, I think everything has been ramped up. I mean, this is the most ridiculous thing uh, they've ever seen. And I'm wondering if after a few days, even Noah's wife looked at him and said, you know, honey, do you want to talk about this? I don't know. Maybe even his own family began to wonder if he had really heard from God. However, as the sun began to set on the seventh day, suddenly... An invisible hand closed the door of the ark, and judgment came. Then guess what? People weren't laughing anymore. They were outside the ark banging to get in. However, it was too late. The opportunity to be safe had passed, 
and all that was left was judgment. It reminds us of the five foolish virgins who didn't have enough oil in their lamps as they were waiting for the bridegroom. And so their lamps went out and they had to go buy oil. And we read in Matthew 25, it's a parable Jesus told, of course. And while they went their way to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. You know, Peter tells us that just as there were scoffers in Noah's day who mocked the idea of a worldwide flood, he said, so there will also be scoffers in the last days who will also mock the idea of a coming worldwide judgment before Jesus returns. Let me read to you from the New Living Translation what Peter says. Second Peter 3, he said, Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Peter said they, de they deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire, the coming judgment that are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. And so Peter is saying that mockers are going to come in the last days. You think we're living in a time when people are mocking the truth of God? You know, and you have so many people that have predicted Jesus' return so many times and has not come to pass that it's like the little boy who cried wolf and now people don't, they, they, they laugh at the idea. Because Christians have been talking about Jesus' return and coming judgment for centuries. But it hasn't happened. But Peter says of this they are willfully ignorant. Because God destroyed the earth once with a flood, a worldwide judgment. And it's going to destroy it again with fire. The heavens will dissolve with a great heat and noise. And the earth will be burned up. And God will recreate everything. Make a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem where all the redeemed will live forever. But getting back to Genesis 7, verse 5 says, And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. Now listen, it was Noah's obedience to what God commanded that saved him and his family. Listen to me. Noah believed God, okay? He believed God. There's a lot of people who believe God but never obey God. I mean, there's a lot of people who are going to go to hell, not because they're atheists or agnostics. They actually believe God. They believe that Jesus is the Savior of the, of the world and so on. It's just that they have not believed to the point of commitment. Obedience doesn't save us, but it's an evidence that we have saving faith. And it was Noah's obedience to what God said that allowed his family to be saved. Now, of course, that was saved from literal death, the waters of the flood. But I think Noah becomes in some ways an example to all of us men that, you know what, the greatest thing we can do for our children, if we want to see them saved, is be men of God. Noah walked with God. He was a righteous man. He preached righteousness. He was in ministry. He obeyed what God had said. But even though it was an incredible task, 
And even though he had never seen rain, he believed what God said. He moved with godly fear, prepared an ark, which saved his family. Look, we need to be men of God. We need to be men who believe God, who obey God, and who exemplify for our children what a life of righteousness is all about. Because most of what our kids are going to learn about God is going to be caught, not taught. It's going to be caught by the way they look at us first as fathers, and of course you gals who are moms. But we parents, but especially us fathers, we have a great responsibility. Noah, he believed God, he obeyed God, and because of it his kids were saved. A little different context than us, but the idea is basically the same. Now in verse 7 we read, So Noah... With his sons, his wife, his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are that are unclean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights. Now, there are many skeptics that ridicule the idea that it could rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights. They claim that it's meteorologically impossible because clouds can't hold that much water. And I've heard some say that even if all the clouds over the face of the earth could be made to release their water all at once, it would only cover the earth to a depth of about two inches. Hardly enough water to cover all the mountains that the Bible talks about the flood covered. Well, first of all, the meteorological conditions of the earth were different before the flood than they are today. We've already talked about that numerous times. The Genesis record right here says that God used two sources to bring waters upon the earth for the great flood. Two sources of water to bring the flood upon the earth. In verse 11 we read once again, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were Open. Now, the fountains of the deep were giant underground reservoirs that God had made when on the second day of creation, he caused, remember this, he caused the waters that were above the firmament to be divided from the waters that were below the firmament. The firmament is the atmosphere around the earth. And we studied that section. We said that when God first made the earth, he made the earth uh, enclosed in a water barrier blanket in the upper atmosphere and that was of course separated from the waters that were on the earth the waters below the firmament became the oceans and seas upon the face of the earth but also they became the fountains of the deep under the earth and these fountains or underground springs fed the rivers of the earth which before the flood is uh, Henry Morris says, and I'm quoting him, were not produced by runoff from rainfall because there wasn't any rainfall before the flood, but emerged through controlled fountains or springs, evidently from deep-seated sources in or below the earth's crust. So you have to understand something, that when God separated the waters in the atmosphere from the waters on the earth, it was not just the waters on the surface of the earth, but under the surface of the earth, you had giant reservoirs of water. Uh, a lot of these springs of water under the earth, which fed rivers and so on, 
but there was a lot of water under the surface as well as on top of the surface. And there's a couple of interesting references, I think, to the abundant supplies of water that God used to put forth to bring the flood on the earth. As you read the, the Old Testament especially, you'll find several places where the language seems to be talking about the flood. Uh, I'll give you a couple. In fact, turn to Proverbs chapter 8. And let's pick it up in verse 24. Now, this is a, a poetic book. And in this chapter, it's talking about wisdom, kind of personified wisdom, as if wisdom is speaking, okay? But it says, when there, was no, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. So when there were no depths, okay, beneath the earth, filled with these fountains, okay, underground fountains and things, uh, God brought forth wisdom. How? Well, because God is wise. And God used his wisdom to create everything that eventually became uh, the creation spoken of in chapter 1 of Genesis. In Job 38, verse 16, we read, Have you entered the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in search of the depths? And God is really kind of reproving Job for talking about things he didn't really understand, as if he knew what he was talking about. And God asked him, do you understand how I made everything? And why I made the animals the way I did and so on. And he goes through and lists all kinds of things that God had done in his wisdom. And Job was ignorant of, you know, because Job was convinced that, you know, God was not acting righteously. That God was doing something wrong. And every, anytime you think God is wrong on some issue, you're wrong and God's always right. But God was kind of chiding Job, reproving him. And one of the things he said to him, have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you been down there under the earth's surface? Do you understand the depths and why I put them there? Well, we're finding out right now. Okay. So the first source of water was the fountains of the great deep. The second one source of water that God used to bring the flood was the waters above the firmament, which, as I've already said, some have referred to as a water blanket above the earth's atmosphere that really covered the earth. Now, as we've already said, that would have blocked out the harmful radiation from outer space, coupled with the fact that the earth's atmosphere was richer in oxygen than it is today, which causes all kinds of growth and things and plants and animals and people. Uh, all of that changed after the flood. But initially when God made the earth, he enclosed the earth in this water Vapor, canopy, blanket, whatever you want to call it. The psalmist talks about this in Psalm 148, verse 4, where the psalmist said, Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. So the psalmist was aware of this. He understood what God had done in the original creation. Now, again, Dr. Henry Morris, in his book, The Genesis Record, a fantastic book if you really want to know Genesis from a scientific standpoint. But Morris said that these waters, and I'm quoting him, these are waters in the atmosphere, upper atmosphere, constituted the vast vaporous canopy which maintained the earth as a beautiful greenhouse, preventing cold temperatures and therefore preventing wind and rainstorms. Being in vapor state, it was invisible and fully transparent, but nevertheless contained vast quantities of water extending far out into space, end quote. And when it says in verse 11 that God opened the windows of heaven, it's talking about how the Lord tore down this water canopy. 
how God tore down this water canopy. And so from these two great water sources, guys, God brought the flood upon the earth. Now, skeptics challenge that even these couldn't produce enough water to cover the earth to a depth of 20 feet above the highest mountain, which they say is Everest, which stands five and a half miles tall. I mean, come on. I mean, even if you got all these underground water reservoirs and whatever water there was in the atmosphere, that couldn't possibly cover the earth to a depth of five and a half miles plus 20 feet to cover Everest. That's a good point. Let's read this and we'll talk about it. Verse 13. On the very same day, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, uh, and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. And the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits, or 20 feet upward, and the mountains were covered. So above the highest mountain, up to 20 feet above, the waters covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle, and beasts of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Again, how could the waters of the flood cover the highest mountain to a depth of 20 feet? Well, the answer is there weren't any high mountains on the earth before the flood. You, know, you had some mountains, but nothing like we see today. I mean, creation scientists, by the way, have pointed out that most of the water from the flood is still on the earth. It's found in the oceans and seas and underground aquifers of the earth. It's still here. And they say that if you could even out the surface, I mean, take all the really high mountains down and fill in all the ocean basins, okay, and make the earth like it was before the flood, the waters on the earth presently would cover the earth to a depth of two miles, a lot of water on the earth still. People say, where did all that water go from the flood? It ran off into the ocean basins and so on. And see, here's the thing. Where did the high mountains come from in all these ocean basins? It was, the, it was all the water pressure pushing down on the earth's crust from the waters of the flood that eventually formed the deep ocean basins and canyons and valleys, plus the pressure that thrust up at the same time the mountains like Everest and all the other high mountains we see today. It was all the water pressure from the flood. The flood greatly changed the topography of the earth. What we see today on the earth is not the earth that existed before the flood. I mean, we know that because when God tore down the windows of heaven 
as we have talked about in another study. It allowed super cold air to come rushing in on the face of the earth. There, there weren't any seasons before the flood. Uh, it changed uh, climatically the seasons. I mean, there wasn't rain. There wasn't wind movement, which causes weather to travel and creates storms and things like that. Okay, All of that changed when the flood came because God tore down the windows of heaven. And so this super cold air from space really came flooding into the Earth's atmosphere. And in places like Siberia, where they have found woolly mammoths, I don't know, 200 feet below the surface of the ice, they have dug them up. They have done an autopsy and found uh, tropical vegetation still in their mouths and digestive tracts. They were flash frozen by super cold air before they could even digest the tropical vegetation that was in their stomachs. So the earth was different than it is today. It was different climactically. It was different topologically. All right. So we have all the high mountains, all the deep valleys, ocean basins, were all the result of the water pressure pushing down some areas and then thrusting up other areas. Now, there was a time not so long ago when Christian theologians, pastors, and laymen simply accepted the biblical account of the flood at face value, at face value believing that it had to be a universal or worldwide flood. It wasn't that long ago. That was just a given. Most every Christian believed that, except if you were a real extreme liberal. But today, that's all changed. Many churches, church scholars, including some evangelicals, have begun to reject a universal flood in favor of a local flood theory. They claim that because of all the problems posed by a universal flood, there couldn't have been a worldwide flood. And yet they acknowledge the Bible does speak about the flood in kind of universal terms. So what's the answer to that? Well, the answer that they have come up with is they believe the account of the flood needs to be interpreted phenomenally. What does that mean? Well, as they describe it, they say that it's a description of the flood as it would appear to Noah and his family. In other words, to them, it would seem like it was a universal flood. But that wouldn't necessarily mean it was a universal flood. I mean, if you're living in an area and the whole area gets flooded, I mean, you know, and, and all, and God says, I'm going to destroy everything. But in the Bible, they point out all doesn't always mean all. You got to look at the context, okay? Uh, you know, yes, all of this, but maybe not all of everything. So they say, look, I mean, just because God says he's going to destroy all flesh from, you know, the earth, well, that could have been just in that area, they claim. And Noah and his family would have kind of seen it that way because to them, it was a universal flood. And so they described it that way, but again, doesn't necessarily mean it was a worldwide flood. And uh, they believe it was actually limited to the Mesopotamian River Valley, the place where Noah and his family lived. Now look, I acknowledge, as well as many others do, that a worldwide global flood theory does have some difficulties attached to it. But so does the local flood theory, and I believe many more difficulties than the universal flood theory. You know, Dr. Henry Morris, again in his book, The Genesis Record, lists 26 reasons. Relax, we're not going to go through them all. <laughs> but I want to tell you, he's come up with 26 reasons why the Bible is describing a worldwide flood and not a local one. Let me just give you seven, okay, seven. First of all, he said, the wording of the entire record, both here and throughout Genesis chapter 6 through 9, 
could not be improved on if the intention of the writer was to describe a universal flood. The idea is that the language here, everything about it talks about a universal flood. So, you know, it's so clear from the text that God is speaking of a universal flood and not a local flood because he said that the description of just a river overflowing in the Mesopotamian River Valley causing a flood, the language here goes way beyond that kind of a local river overflowing its banks and causing a flood. Sure, that's happened many times. People have been killed by things like that. But the language was so far beyond any kind of a talk of a local flood. It, it must be universal. Number two, he said the word in the Hebrew to describe Noah's flood is used only in connection with the flood recorded in Genesis chapter 6 through 9, or in other words, the flood with the ark and so on. All right? He says the ordinary Hebrew words for a local flood are not used here at all. So there are other Hebrew words that are used for local floods, but the Holy Spirit doesn't use them here. He uses a Hebrew word that is used exclusively of Noah's flood which means it's different. Number three, as the rains continued, the waters prevailed, it says. A word in the Hebrew which literally means were overwhelmingly mighty. It would be quite inappropriate, he said, in the setting of a local flood. And he quotes Job chapter 12, verse 15, which says, the waters overturned the earth. The waters of the flood overturned the earth. We're talking about something huge, huge. Number four, if the flood was only, and this is a good one, if the flood was only a local thing, the ark itself would have been unnecessary. I mean, think about it. Why spend 120 years building a vessel the size of a modern-day ocean liner if the flood only affected the Mesopotamian River Valley? as proponents of the local flood theory maintain. I mean, it would have been far more sensible for God to tell Noah and his family, just move out of town. I mean, you know, get, get out of the valley, okay? Cross the mountains, get on the other side. I'm going to wipe out everything in this valley. Why have Noah and his sons work for 120 years building a vessel that wasn't really needed? And by the way, the animals could have migrated away from the area too that God wanted to save. Birds could have flown. I mean, the whole idea that God would, first of all, when God did judge Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? And Lot was there. What did God tell Lot? Build for yourself a, you know, underground bunker? He says, just get out of town. Okay? That was a local judgment. And for a local judgment, you just simply move a person away from the area being judged. Well, this wasn't the case with Noah. All right? I mean, this local flood theory, yeah, a universal flood theory has problems too but nothing like a local flood theory, in my mind, all right? Number five, after the flood was over, God promised never again to destroy the earth with a flood. Now think about that. If God is talking locally, now if the flood was local, and God says, you know what, I'm never going to judge the earth again locally with a flood, which would have to be the implication, well, that would have been a false promise. Because there have been many local floods over the centuries that have wiped out whole areas and killed many people. I mean, God would have not kept his word then. That's impossible for God to have lied or not kept his word. But God said in chapter 8 of Genesis, verses 21 and 2, he said, Never again, and look, listen to the language, okay? Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, 
as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And the guys, this only makes sense if the flood of Noah's day was of worldwide dimensions. Otherwise, that language in chapter 8 is ridiculous, meaningless. Number six, in later chapters of Genesis, the Bible traces all the peoples of the earth back to Noah and his three sons. Now, if the flood was local, it would have only wiped out the local population. All right? There would have not have been all the people of the earth tracing their lineage back to Noah and his three sons. Again, proving the flood was universal, wiped out all human beings except for Noah and his family. And number seven, other passages in the Bible, when speaking out about the flood, also use universal language, uh, describing it as a worldwide event. Now, there's a lot of these. I'm not going to read them to you. I'll, I'll, I'll just give you the references if you want to write them down, or you can come up here afterward and write them down from my notes. But Job 22, verses 15 to 16, Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9, Isaiah 54, verse 9, Hebrews 11, verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, and chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And again, you can write them down from my notes if you want to look these up. But all of these are talking about the flood using universal language. In fact, some of it, like Psalm 104, verses 5 to 9, are very specific. Let me read it to you. The psalmist said, You placed the world on its foundation so it would never be moved. You clothed the earth with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. At your command, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, it hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. Then you set a firm boundary for the seas so they would never again cover the earth. That doesn't sound like a local flood to me. The language is pretty obvious, pretty obvious that it was a universal or worldwide flood. Now, once again, the purpose of the flood, as we've already seen, was to destroy all flesh from the earth because it had all been corrupted. Chapter 6, verse 12 tells us. And again, the language goes beyond a local flood. But Jesus himself, listen, Jesus himself accepted the historicity and the universality of the flood, even using it as an example to point to another judgment that was coming, a worldwide judgment that would take place right before he returned. Of course, we know that judgment is the book of Revelation. But again, the coming judgment is universal. It's going to affect the whole world. Jesus used Noah's flood as an example of another worldwide judgment that was coming, which would be ridiculous if the flood of Noah's day was not universal, not worldwide. Well, you know, skeptics say, what real evidence is there, though, that the flood of Noah's day was a worldwide flood? What evidence is there? Well, let me give you some of it, okay? The bones of whales have been found 440 feet above sea level north of Lake Ontario. Other whole skeletons have been found in Vermont 500 feet above sea level, and another in Montreal, Quebec, about 600 feet above sea level. Scientists have found marine life fossils, uh, found marine life fossils at every level of the Himalayan mountains, some 19 to 20,000 feet high, proving that at one time these mountains were at sea level, covered with water before they were thrust up to the height they are today. 
Also, marine life fossils have been found in Salt Lake and the Salt Lake area and in deserts and inland areas all over the world, which has caused experts to conclude that at one time these areas were underwater. What else are you going to conclude? I mean, the geological evidence is overwhelming for a universal worldwide flood. In fact, I think probably all geologists today believe that all this strata, you know, the, you see in the, um, the textbooks, the science textbooks, you see these, uh, these stratas that they have found, okay? And it's always very nice and neat, and you have one strata laid over another strata, and, you know, and these were laid down, they say, over millions of years of time. And then you see the little books with the charts. This strata was this period, and this, these are the, the animals that had evolved, or the creatures that had evolved you know, during this period of the Earth's history. And then the next level uh, layer of strata was laid down, which you know, was a million years later. And this was allowed animals to evolve. And this is the fossils we have found in this strata. And you read those things in those textbooks and go, well, they must have found this. But if you go out into the real world, as a lot of scientists have done and done their own research and dug up these things they have discovered. And I'll just give you one example. They have discovered a whale that was standing on its tail, basically, okay, uh, vertically through numerous layers of these stratas. Now, that whale would have had to have been standing up for millions of years as each strata was laid down if the scientists were accurate about this. No, that's evidence for catastrophism that something happened quickly, that buried these, you know, the waters of the flood, think about churning waters. I mean, this flood was incredible, churning. Animals were being ripped to shreds, and, and they were being buried quickly, you know, sometimes vertically, like a whale, in these different layers that were laid down relatively quickly over a period of, of weeks, not even millions of years. They say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. That, that doesn't happen that way. Well, I thank God for Mount St. Helens. Because Mount St. Helens, when it erupted in 1980, it laid down, and of course there was different things that happened too, but the strata was laid down, canyons were formed, uh, and things were laid down so quickly as a matter of hours and days, not millions of years. If you were to go to the area around Mount St. Helens today, you would, it would look as though it took millions of years to lay this down because that's what they're telling us. But in reality, it took just a few days. We're learning that it doesn't take all that time to lay down these various stratas. It can happen quickly. Catastrophes have done this. And the flood was the ultimate catastrophe the world has ever seen. As far as fossils are concerned, Henry Morris said, the preservation of fossils requires rapid burial and lithification or else they will be destroyed by decay or scavengers. You know, we have fossils. Now, before I, I came here tonight, I watched the DVD by a scientist who's a Christian, but he was talking about Noah's flood. And he was showing pictures of fossils, and he showed a couple, one where a fish was eating another fish, in the process of eating a fish, and was fossilized. Another one was giving birth to a young one, and was fossilized. Something happened quickly that caused these creatures to be fossilized, because you can't have fossils uh, made over millions of years of time. You have organic material. It'll decay. But these things were preserved instantly as they were fossilized. And it was because of the waters of the flood. Now, let's just end with this. I thought this was really interesting. Do you realize that there are literally hundreds of people groups from all over the world that have their own flood stories in their history? 
One of the most remarkable is the Babylonian account, which is similar to the Genesis account in many ways. In fact, it's clearly drawn from the Genesis account. But listen, since all mankind now after the flood came from Noah and his three sons, and as they had children and the children spread out over the face of the earth, they all brought with them the story of the flood because that was their story, all right? That was their story. And um, of the more than 200 cultures from all over the world that have their own account of the flood, the following aspects in all these cultures, the following uh, aspects of the story are in common, all right? All these people have their own flood stories. Listen to how they are similar with each other. 88% describe a favored family that survives the flood. 70% attribute their survival to a boat or vessel of some kind. 95% say the sole cause of the catastrophe was a flood. 66% say that the disaster was due to man's wickedness. 67% record that animals were also saved. 57% describe that the survivors ended up on a mountain. And many of the accounts also specifically mention birds being sent out, a rainbow, and eight persons being saved. Now, if the flood wasn't real, how did all of these people groups from all over the world, and I could have given you the names, I've, I, I had a list of all the tribes in different places in the world, where most of the names I didn't recognize, but they were from all over the world, you have people groups that have in their ancient history a flood story. Some of it very similar to the Bible. Others, you know, has parts that are similar. But a common denominator, a flood, people being saved uh, on a boat, animals with them, coming to rest on a mountain, you know, a rainbow and different things happening. This speaks of a common occurrence that they all, you know, trace their lineage back to. And that would be Noah and his sons leaving the ark to populate the world after the flood. So once again, guys, I mean, you know, there was a time when the scientists laughed at the creationists uh, because we believe that God created everything and that there was a, a, the Bible was correct when it talked about uh, a universal flood and things. They used to laugh at us. But as the evidence is mounting, is our understanding of biology and genetics is increasing. DNA and different things like that. We understand that there's no way that things could have evolved. Human life is just too complex, and animal life also. And as the evidence begins to mount more and more that, look, even geologists say that, uh, that these stratas were laid down by water, but they say it was local floods because they don't want to go there. They, don't, they can't go there. And say, well, no, it was just one big universal flood. They have to kind of, you know, diminish uh, the Bible because it destroys everything they built their careers on. So my point is that, you know what? As God's word tells us what happened, you can trust that. Uh, you can trust that. Generations before us believed God's word, even though they didn't have the evidence we have today. Uh, us more than ever, we should be able to say, God, thank you that you know, you've recorded in your word. And if something like the flood, which is really hard for a lot of people, unbelievers to really believe in, Lord, if you're showing us, uh, as you have been showing us, all the evidence that 
points to the fact that the flood was real and worldwide. The ark existed and still exists on the mountains of Ararat somewhere. People have seen it. People have brought pieces back from it. Lord, it's all pointing to the reality that your word can be trusted. Your word can be trusted. And even though, like Noah, he never saw the judgment that God spoke of until it came. He never saw rain. But he moved with godly fear in obedience to God. Even though we have never seen a worldwide judgment that's coming, we believe it's coming. And we believe that we don't have to prepare an ark to be saved. We have an ark called Jesus Christ. He is the living ark, the place of safety and refuge. And if we will enter into him willingly, by faith, God will seal us in Christ, then we will then be protected from the judgment that's coming upon this earth. So, you know what? We are living in, if you're a believer, exciting times. If a person's an unbeliever, well, they're really having a ball today because, again, wickedness is on the move. And they're laughing at those of us who believe in God's word and talk about a coming judgment. They laugh at that. But I hope they get saved because they're not going to be laughing much longer. The judgment is coming. And may God give us grace to tell them as faithfully as Noah did his generation, the time has come to repent because there's only a short time that God gives you the opportunity to be saved. Before the offer is withdrawn, the door is closed, judgment comes. May God give us grace to speak that word faithfully. Father, we thank you, Lord, that as we study your word and see what you have said about the subject we're studying tonight, the the flood, and then we go out into the world, Lord, we can see that the evidence matches what your word has said. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is faithful, it's true, it's trustworthy, and we can build our lives and eternity on what you have said. And so, Lord, give us grace to be like Noah, righteous, living righteous lives, preaching faithfully the gospel. And Lord, we just pray that our loved ones and friends and neighbors and co-workers will repent, work in their hearts, Lord, that they would repent. You would open their eyes, that many would understand that right now the door to Christ is open and you're inviting them to enter to escape the wrath to come. And we just pray, Lord, that they will respond to that invitation before it's too late. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.